바로 여기 위성의 발사가 성공했습니다. I do not have any master except the Filipino people. Nobody but nobody. 亚欧非洲美洲大洋洲共建一带一路扩展的新世界 My most sincere apologies to all people of Hong Kong. Australia simply seeks the freedom to be ourselves. Like the president, I continue to stand in with India and confronting the threats it faces. Then the world will be a safer place. Hindustan ke sabhi sansadon ke liye standing ovation ho jaye. The Kim and I getting to know the Indo-Pacific. Welcome to the Kim and I. This is our very first podcast episode, and you may be wondering who is Kim or who is the Kim. Well, that is what we are here to find out today. Of course, this podcast is about getting to know the Indo-Pacific and so much more. But today, we want to find out who is the producer of the show. And so, without further ado, let's uh, bring on our producer. Kim, would you like to tell us who you are, and more importantly, what is your mission? Why are we doing this podcast, and where do you see it going in the future? Well, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to a larger audience.、Uh, I happen to be one of the pioneers on the role of the think tanks or semi-official think tanks in representing regional governments in articulating their views. And even their quasi-policy positions on various issues, and I've been observing that over the last 25 to 27 years or so,、uh, a lot of issues have become a lot of, in other words, a lot of issues articulated by the think tanks have actually become policy, and it has re- it it has evolved to such a stage where it. Where one can even refer to it as defensive diplomacy. So, in other words, you have track one diplomacy, where government to government conduct their formal businesses,、uh, trying to enhance peace or avert war. But on the other hand, you also have track two, or even track one point seven five diplomacy. Where both sides are trying to explore the viability of talking further, in taking baby steps towards certain direction that will not embarrass either side. So, the Kim and I program that I suggested is actually a recollection of all my research in recent years, perhaps decades,、uh, starting from my original. Thesis at University of Cambridge on Track Two diplomacy as a mechanism of managing tension between various government after they have emerged from such an intense and turbulent Cold War when the Berlin Wall ended in 1980.、Uh, well, Berlin Wall ended in 1989, leading to also the termination of the Cold War. Uh huh. Uh huh.、Mm. So there is so much to unpack there. You、mm. spoke about dual track diplomacy, its、sure. repercussions on our current global order. Nikim,、sure. you've、uh, had、mm-hmm. such a multifaceted career. 
And mm-hmm. you are such a multifaceted person, both personally mm-hmm. and professionally. And so I'm sure there's a lot for us to uncover. And we're going to go into your story a little later on in the episode. But mm-hmm. um, let's just introduce for listeners, what is the aim of this podcast, uh, other than sharing the insights you've gained from your career over the decades? Mm-hmm. Uh, who are we going to be talking to on this show? And, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the Kim and I... I suppose is, is a, is a nice little play upon the name of the famous, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein musical, which, uh, <laughs> was also set in this region, in the Indo-Pacific. But can you That's sort right. of set the stage for us here metaphorically as to what uh, we can look forward to from this podcast? Well, at the risk of being egocentric or sounding like a narciss- narcissist, mm-hmm. <laughs> The Kim and I is actually based on that movie played by Yoon Brenner. That's right. Uh, the King and I, where you have the protagonist and the antagonist trying to reconcile their differences on East and West and finding the best way, uh, best way forward to help Siam or the Kingdom of Siam, uh, navigate through various colonial powers that have their eye on the riches and the wealth of, of that country. Uh-huh. Uh, not excluding taking, o- taking over their sovereignty. So the Kim and I is actually based on the Pacific impulse to help countries understand that in spite of everything that has been done by track one and track two, that I mentioned earlier over the last few decades, we are actually entering a very turbulent and unique age. And strangely enough, we can almost pinpoint when that historical process began. Now, from a very generic standpoint, the concept of Indo-Pacific was articulated by former Prime Minister of Japan, Abe Shinzo, in 2002. However, his tenure back then was very short. And when he explained the the importance of Indo-Pacific, no one really had the chance to listen to the whole substance and fullness of that idea. As a result of which, Indo-Pacific was not considered something that any theories or policy makers should take seriously. Uh-huh. However, one should understand that there is a genealogy or history behind Indo-Pacific that made it more and more important over the last, uh, say, couple of decades. The couple of decades, you're right. Why is that, Kim? What led to its growing importance. Okay. Well, first of all, there is a huge disparity between what people understand about international relations and how international relations actually churn in the mind of the decision makers. Uh So let's take China, for instance. The conventional discourse about China is that it is a huge continental empire that is winning, if not has won, in Uh light of how it has managed COVID-19. But obviously, we can also also mention many cases 
where democratic countries have also handled COVID-19 extremely well. Yes. Now, if we rank China in terms of the size of the exclusive economic areas, you'll be surprised that China is actually ranked 33. And number 34 is Kiribati. However, if you look at the entire hierarchy, France is number one. And the strong and uh, just to clarify, sorry, just to clarify, this is in terms of exclusive economic zones. That's right. That's right. So France is number one. The likes of United Kingdom, Canada, United States, Russia, Australia are all in the top five of economic uh, exclusive economic zone. Yeah. Rather than pure, just pure GDP. right. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, one of the reasons why Japan, the, or the likes of Japan, or perhaps even Korea, are really not that intimidated by the size and the modernization of China, other than all the preparations that they have been doing by forming alliances with different countries, is because there is a huge disparity between the naval operations uh, or the size of the naval operations that are at stake. So, as I mentioned earlier, Japan is number seven and one, just one place ahead of Japan is Indonesia. Okay. Now, things would begin to make sense when you understand why Prime Minister Suga Mm-hmm. immediately came to Vietnam and Indonesia instead of some larger countries that could come to the aid of Japan in case of any uh, military complexity, mm-hmm. to put it simply. That's primarily that's because uh, Vietnam has a large claim over South China Sea and some of the claims converge with the interests of Japan on East China Sea vis-a-vis China. Yes. And then Indonesia is also a very important country to Japan because Indonesia has increased its prominence and control over a small but very strategic island known as the Natuna Island over the North Natuna Sea. That's right. In the southern part of the, in the South southern China part. Sea, that's we, right. Yeah, we're in the southern part of South China Sea, very, very close to one of the Nine Dash Line, mm-hmm. leading into the Straits of Malacca. Mm-hmm. Now, the policy makers in Japan, in France, they have all understood that they are geopolitical future and destiny, if not their economic livelihood, rest in this very large and rich marine environment. Uh The trade, the annual trade in South China Sea verges on five to six trillion dollars, perhaps even more after the end of the pandemic. Now, surprisingly, France is actually a major Indo-Pacific power. Now, in addition to which, the United Kingdom 
is also an Indo-Pacific power by virtue of its historical role as a former colonial uh, power mm. in this part of the world. It shouldn't really, shouldn't really be surprising, really, considering that's, both countries' deep uh-huh. historical ties. Yes. That's right. That's right. So you have France that it's, that has very strong tie in the continental site of Southeast Asia, which is Indochina. Uh-huh. Right? So you have countries such as Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam that have very good and strong relationship with Paris. Uh-huh. Uh, but on the other hand, starting from Malaysia, Singapore, you also have relationships that are very strong with London. Uh-huh. And in Indonesia, you have relationship that is rather, uh, rather healthy with the Netherlands, the of current course. Netherlands. Yes. So we can say the post-colonial context really brings exactly. in, uh, mm-hmm. brings back players uh, from the European theater who were historically so deeply involved in the region. Uh, they're back again and they're in a different context, of course, but That's right. their power and their interests uh, cannot be overlooked. So it That's really right. sets uh, up mm-hmm. an Indo-Pacific, which transcends uh, the Indo-Pacific countries themselves, it's more of a global arena. That's right. Because, That's of right. course, you have the United States mm-hmm. uh, as a, mm-hmm. uh, the Pacific pivotal country. Pacific country and the mm-hmm. the maintainer of the security order of right. and economic order in a large uh, way right. of the Pacific. Right. And then, of course, so, so really, Kim, mm-hmm. we're looking at the Indo-Pacific is really mm-hmm. the arena for the 21st century world order. Is that that's how you right. feel? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly how I feel. But having said so, some of the in- institutions that have been established in Indo-Pacific area seem to be stronger in Southeast Asia vis-a-vis the South Pacific. Okay. Because you have about 16 Pacific islands of various sizes in the South Pacific. They do have the South Pacific Forum. Yes. However, Australia and New Zealand have not paid too much attention out of respect to their indigenous culture, uh, the willing, willingness to allow them to grow at their own pace. Mm-hmm. So Australia and New Zealand are important to those South Pacific countries. But having said so, they haven't put uh, too much effort in developing South Pacific because these are also republics or entities that can be considered ex-colonial countries. Mm -hmm. So there is that obvious sensitivity involved. Mm -hmm. Now, Indo, as I mentioned earlier, somewhat ironically, you can almost pinpoint the date of when or why the Indo-Pacific century started. I was the director of political security and community in ASEAN sector back in 2019. And the, depart- the 
Department of Defense in United States or Pentagon released what is known as the Indo-Pacific Strategic Paper on May 31st, just a few days prior to the ASEAN Leaders Summit in Bangkok last year. I got it. Yeah? Now, Kim, can you tell us about your first-hand experience? What did you see and experience at ASEAN? And okay. I would like to mm-hmm. have it... Uh, if you could talk from the perspective of why this is important for SPIPA and perhaps why it inspired you to, to found this think tank. Oh, because as I understand, sure. uh, there were some disappointments mm. there and you could see mm. some of the institutional failures there. Could you mm. give us a sense of what you see is really holding back uh, the, the development of, of that regional entity? And sure. why we need uh, think tanks like the one you have found, you have founded. Sure. As I mentioned earlier, when I first started working on track two diplomacy, I had the privilege of interviewing someone senior in Indonesia. And I asked that person, how would he describe track two diplomacy in Southeast Asia or more specifically in ASEAN? And he used a combination of two words to explain that process, which is known as institutionalism and realism as an experiment to try to create an entity or a process that can socialize or engage China. Uh This was back in 1995 when... China had already become a member of the ASEAN Regional Forum. Uh-huh. Yeah? Yes. Uh, now, the first decade of the ASEAN Regional Forum was quite successful in the sense that ASEAN Regional Forum, which is the only multilateral forum in the region, was able to lay out in very specific terms albeit in staggered manner, as to what all the countries should do collectively in engaging China, not confronting China at all, but in engaging China as a proper stakeholder. Okay. So the first stage would involve what is known as uh, confidence building. Uh The second stage would then go to Preventive diplomacy, which is a concept that was originally coined by the late Secretary General of the United Nations, Boutros uh-huh. Boutros Ghali. Uh-huh. And then the third stage would be um, peacekeeping. Peacekeeping. Um, among peacekeeping Maintenance of the among, security order. That's right. By uh, bringing China on board. That's right. Okay. Peacekeeping. So what would you say, and which areas, finally, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, if, if I may, finally, Please. it would be maritime cooperation between all the navies, including China. Uh-huh. So those were the four stages. However, with the growth of China over the last four decades, there has been a clear case of an asymmetry of power, where China is now much stronger than all the navies of the 10 Southeast Asian countries or the 16 countries in the Pacific, or perhaps even including 
Australia and New Zealand. Uh-huh. So over the last one year, especially during the Trump administration, there has been that realization, especially by the advisor of President Trump, Professor Michael Pewsbury, who argued that the only way in which one can socialize China is by creating as many allies as possible, uh, especially based on the concept of what is known as the quads. So you have United States, Japan, India, and Australia forming the Bukwa uh-huh. and potentially becoming a quad plus, including the member states of ASEAN and also the 16 Pacific states in the South Pacific. Yes. Uh, to, to sort of signal to China that the whole region is not as hopeless as it seems, even though some of the institutions are not working accordingly, or perhaps have been, to put it kindly, compromised by the efforts of uh, China. Right. So in other words, the there is resilience among those countries, the smaller or middle powers or uh, mm-hmm. smaller countries to uh, the idea of, of a rising hegemon from China mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that there are multiple channels for them to exercise their influence and to right. group together and to bargain uh, with China or, or potentially with the U.S. as well collectively over uh, many different areas. And right. I believe you have put forward, uh, I believe it is mm-hmm. seven – the seven key t- uh, T's, and then they all begin with T, topic areas right. which uh, well, you see as the core yeah. of U.S.-China relations going forward and possibly, you know, the Indo, what could decide the fate of the Indo-Pacific as, as a region. Right. Is that how well, you would frame those, those precisely, issues? Precisely. Well, I'm a big believer in what, Professor Stephen Van Ever at MIT once said, if you cannot arrow it, you cannot explain it. Now, you have more than 1,000 track 1 and track 2 dialogues in the region. And I have a feeling, and I've also observed it at first hand, most of the thinkers and bureaucrats in the region, even if you give them a security or defense portfolio, they can't really see the head from the tail. Uh-huh. Therefore, there is a need for think. There is a need for think tanks such as Strategic Pan Indo Pacific to help them understand what is Indo Pacific in addition to the implications resulting from the pandemic. At the risk of sounding or at the or making my think tank look uh, too far ahead. What I'm saying is that my think tank has the empirical experience of going into ASEAN leaders meeting uh-huh. in light of my previous role as director of political and security community. And I could see that most of the ASEAN leaders, whether they are the prime ministers, presidents, or even foreign ministers, uh, or defense ministers, they were not very serious in understanding the 
problem posed by a large and emerging power. Uh, nor did they pay any attention to what Professor Graham Allison at Harvard called the Thucydides trap. Yes. Mm-hmm. So now this tank that you're heading is mm-hmm. really, it sounds like it's was born out of the pandemic era and it is That's right. a forward-looking tank that That's is right. aiming to inform them of exactly what are the risks and what are the challenges going forward in terms of That's right. counter-hedging, you know, the, the, the uh, rising powers and their geopolitical mm-hmm. the geopolitical clashes that come about from this. That's Where right. do you see yourself and your tank making the biggest impact? Is it in the economic sphere? Is it in maritime security? You seem to speak a lot about that. Mm-hmm. What exactly are the leaders of the region most confused over? Where are they lacking common consensus? Well, you do... Having said what I just said earlier, you do have a lot of good thinkers spread all over the region, but they haven't been galvanized into a critical mass. So my think tank can play that role of providing them with the platform mm-hmm. to bounce their ideas back and forth mm-hmm. from different theoretical, theoretical contexts, be they realist, constructivist, liberal or otherwise. That's one. Secondly, I feel that my think tank can can actually help them understand the importance or the continuity of the idea of Indo-Pacific despite the transition in the United States recently. President Donald Trump uh, was the one who presided over the dawn of the Indo-Pacific age. Yes. But one has to keep in mind that this idea actually was created by um, ex-Prime Minister, exactly, ex-Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. Shinzo. Mm -hmm. Abe Shinzo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, it is also a concept that lingered in the, towards the end of the Bush administration in 2008. It was, however, not taken up fully by the Obama administration. And that having been said, Obama administration used the word pivot or rebalancing to emphasize the importance of the United States remaining a key power in the region. And on the other hand, ASEAN has always emphasized ASEAN centrality and the importance of the regional architecture set up by ASEAN, such as ASEAN Regional Forum or ASEAN Defense Minister Plus, as I mentioned earlier. Now, amidst all these institutions that have been created, the academic academic discourse, whether in the universities in the West or in the East, have been deeply influenced by what is known as ASEAN Way, where mm-hmm. everything can be discussed in a very flexible, uh, informal and diplomatic manner, which... I refer to as a form of defensive or defense diplomacy earlier in the broadcast. Now, what is dangerous and where, and where I can come in is to explain that we have reached a stage 
where the defense diplomacy or ASEAN way have both reached a point of diminishing return because China, for what it's worth, is a country that is increasingly able to develop its blue water fleet mm-hmm. and, and no longer attached to the idea that they are only happy with a brown water fleet yes. that can protect their coast. Yes. And also because the realization has dawned on them that even if they want to be the number two or the number one geopolitical or economic power in the region or in the world, Mm. they are actually number 33 Mm. when it comes to measuring their exclusive economic zone. However, if they were to claim the South China Sea, by design or by default, they can always put themselves at the perch of the diplomatic table because all of a sudden they are no longer one of those countries that are next to Kiribati. That's right. They are, they are a power that has to be taken seriously by United States, United Kingdom, Russia, Japan, South Korea, and all those naval powers that are now gradually increasing their capability. Because as you said, that gives them the ability to turn off or, you know, block up to somewhere north of $6 trillion worth of trade. That's right. So that's enormous power as well as the resources that are there, as well as the simply the geographical area uh, of the South China Sea, which is vast. But I just want to come back, Kim. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. just were mentioning defense diplomacy Mm. and uh, how it has diminishing Mm. returns now. It seems Mm. to me it would be logical that ASEAN needs Mm -hmm. to get on the front foot then. It needs to have a more assertive maritime defense policy vis-a-vis China now. What do you think is the key for unlocking that multilateral, uh, more assertive defense policy in the maritime arena mm. within Southeast Asia toward China? What do you see? Well, within regard? the context of ASEAN, they have to realize that there are four kinds of regionalism at, at stake. The first is actually meta-regionalism. Meta-regionalism is one where you can include trans-Pacific partnership because it's so big, it's so huge. Yes. It goes, it extends all the way to Latin America. And then the second form of regionalism is actually micro-regionalism where you have China, Japan, and South Korea who have increased their intra-regional trade to the tune of 80% in spite of ASEAN. That's a huge increase. That's a huge increase over the last 40 years. That's really deepening those Mm. trade ties. And in in spite of their conflict and tension, they've Mm. already reached 80%. Mm. North, North American Free Trade Agreement has reached 67%. And that's con- that's already considered extremely good until President Trump pulled it out from NAFTA. Mm-hmm. So even without a proper agreement between the three key powers, uh, they have already reached eighty percent among themselves mm-hmm. in terms of intra-regional trade. So that's referred to as meso-regionalism. 
ASEAN falls in the third category, uh, which is known as micro-regionalism. Uh, and finally, you have a, an even smaller regionalism, which is known as economic triangle. So you might have economic triangle between uh, a state of Sabah in Malaysia and Mindanao in Philippines uh, and an area in Kalimantan in Indonesia. Yeah. So tr- the, the triangulation of that commerce will be, will, should be known as, uh, the smallest of all forms of the four regionalism. It's cross-border, but it is localized to, localized. Exactly. Localized to geographic regions which are in close proximity to each other. So it simply makes practical sense. Exactly. To do so. Now, what is unfortunate about ASEAN is that over the last few decades, it has become confounded or confused by the different kinds of regionalism that I just mentioned. Mm. So, for instance, ASEAN is actually number three in terms of promoting regionalism. And that diplomatic oddity or paradox, it's very obvious. So, the late Minister Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore used to ask uh, in a very rhetorical manner, who was the one who came up with ASEAN plus three? Because ASEAN cannot be the collection or the motley collection of countries to be leading China, Japan, and Korea. It doesn't make sense in any school of thought. Right. Despite ASEAN's hopes to you know, maintain right. its exactly. centrality. That's uh, right. In terms of the simple economic size of the economies we're talking about. That's right. Uh, yeah. Illogical. So, exactly. So the late minister, the late mentor minister Lee Kuan Yew used to say that if any phrase should be deployed in a more appropriate manner, it should be three plus ASEAN. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You just mentioned, yeah, so it is third. I I wasn't quite sure what you mentioned when you said ASEAN is third in promoting regionalism in the area. I suppose First and second are then mm. China and Japan, just in terms of the economic size. Is is that what okay. you meant? Yeah. Uh, that's actually not what I meant, but okay. that's that's what the academics have demar- demarcated to help the policymakers understand how they can actually shape their trade or even defense policy. Sure. So, for instance, if you are indulged or engaged in uh, something r- large such as Trans-Pacific Partnership or Comprehensive Trade Partnership, CPTPP, yes. then you are actually involved in the first or second tier of the regional regionalism that I explained. But unfortunately, ASEAN has been in the left, right and center of the discourse of on regionalism. And that discourse has even penetrated into institutions of learning or tertiary, or institutions of tertiary learning uh-huh. that a lot of university graduates come out assuming that ASEAN centrality or ASEAN regional architecture are sufficient to accommodate or to 
uh, adjust to the geopolitical geopolitical reality of coexisting with China. Right. So as I mentioned earlier, if you cannot if you cannot arrow it, you cannot explain it. And when you cannot explain it, then all your policy prescriptions to your president, prime ministers, and foreign ministers, or, or even the sec- sector general of, of ASEAN would all be mangled. Because you may actually think you are making sense when in fact you are actually, you are confusing between the four forms of regionalism that I just mentioned. And this applies to a country like, or an entity like Taiwan. Taiwan constantly wants to be in the region. Yes, included and, in all, all of the above that we just discussed, the ASEAN right. Plus program, the CPTPP, et cetera, right. et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. As and when there is a benefit for the People's Republic of China to do so, China would allow Taiwan to be in APEC. So Taiwan is in APEC, but Taiwan is not in ASEAN. That's right. So when you have a discourse, international relations discourse, either in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or in the elite universities in the East or the West that don't actually know how to distinguish between or separate the wheat from the chaff, it makes it very difficult for the policy makers to actually speak in a common tone as to what they actually want to achieve or do or or even manage their expectations. I see. How have you seen this where during your time at ASEAN? Could you give us some examples of perhaps some of the misguided uh, outcomes they were hoping to achieve or some of the, sure. the, the lack of communication? Is it is it sort of a cross department thing or is it is it is it goes a bit deeper than that it sounds from what you're saying about the theoretical confusion that it may be more on the conceptual level but but how did that sort of uh happen practically for you when you were in you know the the position you were at ASEAN so one of the first things that i realized about ASEAN is that everyone inside the organization or ASEAN secretariat have practically stopped learning or stopped unlearning about the wrong things which they have imbibed over the course of the last 25 to 30 years because they have developed that sense of comfort that since war has not broken out in any part of the region since 1979, what is described as ASEAN peace or East Asian peace, Therefore, they could claim to have done their job. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so you have a lot of dim- diplomatic decision makers who rest on their laurels, sure. or who even ca- who even came up with concepts such as ASEAN political or and security community, or even one ASEAN community by twenty twenty five. And they have a matrix, a huge matrix of what they have achieved over the years. Uh-huh. But the matrix is actually very de- de- uh, deluding or very uh, inaccurate. 
right. in leading them into becoming an integrated region because the metrics can include 1,000 dialogues with their counterparts in China, Japan, Korea. But then when you are having so many, so many discussion and when you, you actually encourage some of your leaders to ink them into say, uh, regional comprehensive economic partnership that you heard of last week. Yes. Which is known as RCEP. Yes. And then touting it as the region, the largest economic agreement in the free trade agreement in the world, then to a large degree, you are really fooling yourself. Mm. Because if you look at the pres, the statement coming out from President Xi Jinping, no doubt President, Prime Minister Li Keqiang at, was quite happy with the outcome of RCEP. But if you look carefully, President Xi Jinping also argued that he would be happy to join CPTPP or even encourage the whole of China to embrace TPP if President-elect Joe Biden were to revive it. Mm, there's no loss for China. Exactly. They're, exactly. I mean, they would like to join as many multilateral trading. Exactly. Uh, including, exactly. including APEC. Yep, of course. Including APEC. It's, so, it's a broader, it opens up more markets. So exactly. There's very exactly. little resistance, unlike That's in the right. US where these kinds of agreements have become poisonous, politically speaking. That's right. To the electorate. Yeah. <laughs> That's partly because China grew on the back of what is referred in Japan as the Akamatsu thesis or Akamatsu theory of the flying, the reverse flying geese formation where Japan would fly at the fall and the rest of the countries in East Asia would follow closely behind. I see, I see. Okay. In other words, exporting their goods to the United States. Uh-huh. The Akamatsu theory. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, and China views that they have taken over from Japan uh-huh. in terms of the ability to manufacture or produce any goods uh-huh. to the United States. Uh-huh. Not now, just in quantity, but obviously not just in quantity. the 2025 you know, industrial plan. That's right. That's the, that's the aim is to overtake Japan to leapfrog in a number of key uh, industries. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my think tank, coming back to what we just explored earlier, strategic pan Indo Pacific uh, arena or what is abbreviated as SPIPA. My think tank, however, truly believe that the ones that will be on the right side of history are those that are on the path of democracy. Uh, it doesn't mean that I am a believer in what Francis Fukuyama said back in 1989 about the end of history, but somehow democracy just allows more room for dialogue that can actually ensure that a country does not become a totalitarian surveillance state uh-huh. with all the artificial intelligence, cameras, uh, the fear of terrorism that are all coming in. Sure. 
Now, to the degree that a country does not become a totalitarian surveillance state, then you have certain legal room to pro- pro- to protect your personal data rather than having all your personal information and privacy being in the hands of organizations uh, that are connected to the state. Yes. There now, are a lot of ways... Sorry, continue. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I just... I, there are a lot of ways directions we can go with this, Kim. I just sure. was curious about the rise of authoritarianism within Southeast Asia itself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, China is aside, obviously, this, you know, we're talking broadly across a lot of different countries here, but let's, let's, I mean, if we think about the rise of uh, the mm-hmm. crackdown on the press in the Philippines mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and uh, the demanding, the demands of the Vietnamese government on Facebook to, Yep. Delete uh, anti-government yep. posts and a whole yep. matter, you know, everything going on in Thailand. How do you see yep. exactly what you were just alluding to there? Because mm-hmm. this is now we're referring to the going into the domestic policy. We've spoken a lot about the the diplomacy, but how does uh, the maintenance of democracy and the and this sort of uh, pushback against authoritarianism, this kind of creeping authoritarianism and sort of techno authoritarianism, and there are a whole bunch of other sort of hybrid terms that have come out to it. To describe this kind of a new wave of of mm-hmm. uh, non democratic uh, behaviors that have come around with this technology, mm-hmm. but how does mm-hmm. this play into uh, Southeast Asian countries and their governance systems, and how does that change mm-hmm. regionalism itself? If I can bring it back to the early discussion of regionalism, sure, that's actually a very good question, and the answer to that question is actually to what extent. There's the Secretary General of the ASEAN Secretariat, who is selected every five years on an alphabetical basis, has the necessary courage to speak up mm. on behalf of the region or even to gem- gently reprimand them, either in the fall by writing an op-ed that we are heading in the right direction, in the wrong direction, or perhaps even by making a very private and uh, discreet trip into the capital to advise those member states that are under ASEAN Secretariat not to curtail the press freedom of those countries. Because if one were to refer to the works of Amaria Sen, as and when you have a democratic deficit or information deficit, the likelihood of a famine is actually higher than a country that functions merely on simple democracy. Because when you have a farming society, like what you mostly have in Southeast Asia, because not all of Southeast Asia have become the hub of industrialization. Mm-hmm. Many, many of them are still uh, pastoral or farming society. And you need democracy to ensure that the right information and price signals can reach the farmers uh, promptly in order to alert them 
of any potential shortage that may be triggered by climate change or weird climate, as mm. some might put it. Mm. So some of these leaders in Southeast Asia, and that's one of the reasons why I decided not to remain in ASEAN Secretariat and form my own think tank, is because I would prefer to be the bellwether of right. some of these systemic dangers rather than, as some may put it, become a key member of the sectorate itself where you are practically expected to zip your lips and not challenge the ASEAN Secretary General. I got it. Can you speak more to your frustrations regarding that? What was it I like have, to have to zip your lips, well, as you say? Yeah, first of, first of all, the director of political and security community in ASEAN is actually quite central to the whole operations of ASEAN because the likes of us have to handle ASEAN Leaders Summit in June, uh, ASEAN Foreign Ministers and ASEAN Defence Ministers Plus in July and August and leading up to the East Asian Summit where the American President or the Russian President, including uh, the Chinese president and Japanese prime minister would all have to converge, even though they only do it over a day. Uh. But that is the one opportunity when ASEAN can show that it has the capability of galvanizing or gathering all these leaders in the region, depending on who is, which member state is the chair of the country. Yes. So in the case of uh, what happened or what transpired this year, Vietnam was supposed to be the chair of ASEAN. Right. But due to pandemic, they had to have a virtual summit uh, in ASEAN in June and also a virtual East Asian summit in late November ah. where President Donald Trump uh, appeared. Even though he has not uh, attended any one of the last three East Asian summit because uh. he believes that the concept East Asia is not as significant as the idea of Indo-Pacific that I just mentioned. Yes. In addition to which, Indo-Pacific has also been embraced by Japan. There is a white paper of Indo-Pacific strategy uh, by Australia. Yes. New Zealand is close behind. France is the only country in Europe from European Union that also has an Indo-Pacific strategy. And India, despite its historical status as a country that always emphasizes on its strategic autonomy in light of its role as a founder of the non-aligned movement, India also has a look or, or rather an, an act is policy mm, that was right. conceptualized in 2015. So you have all these convergence of policy in some form. So it seems to me, yeah, yeah. It, it seems to me that the Indo-Pacific is definitely got a lot of, lot more life in it than, than the Trump administration. Definitely. Of course, in definitely. the West and in America, especially, there is 
I believe that the Indo-Pacific was sort of the the Trump mm-hmm. administration's contribution to U.S. foreign policy. However, mm-hmm. it it has really grown far beyond that. So it seems, regardless mm-hmm. of how the Biden administration decides to frame right. the mm-hmm. the the region, that the other countries of the region, it, it's already become uh, much a part of of their outlook. That's right. I mean, if we were to compare, say, apple to an orange, uh, and that might not be the right analogy, but if we were to compare ASEAN with, or ASEAN Regional Forum with the Indo-Pacific Command, which have two different functions altogether, you, one can understand that the United States and its allies have taken Indo-Pacific strategy to a very serious stage to the degree that they even altered the name Pacific Command to Indo-Pacific Command. Uh-huh. And that's where 500,000 uh, armies or naval troops can be marshaled and galvanized and gathered in probably less than a week uh-huh. by all the American allies, including uh-huh. Taiwan. Uh-huh. So if you, if one were to speak of the importance of hard power in correlation with a concept such as Indo-Pacific, then that is the biggest indic- indicator and the strongest one, the name change that there are some decision makers whether in the White House or Blue House in Korea or the Kante in Japan that take the concept sufficiently serious enough to believe that we are entering an Indo-Pacific age. And even Joe Biden mentioned the importance of Indo-Pacific short of using the word freedom uh, of... Freedom, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Freedom, free, exactly. Yes, what which is, of course, accept, yeah, what he, the word that he used in order to distinguish himself from his Japanese colleague was accessible access to the relevant sea. And it's also important to understand that ASEAN itself did not dis- dismiss Indo-Pacific in the ASEAN Indo-Pacific paper or ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific last June. For the very first time, the Indian Ocean was considered a contiguous maritime basin connected to South China Sea. What are the implications of that strategically? Right. The implication of that is that uh, entities such as Quartz or Quart Plus can consider... Indian Ocean and South China Sea as one unified theater or military command. Mm. In fact, the word Southeast Asia will give you that echo. Mm. Southeast Asia originally was not a word that made any historical sense in any concrete manner at all. It was Lord Mountbatten in India who coined the word Southeast Asia, including Sri Lanka, Mm. in order to make sure that whatever logistics that are provided by London 
or whatever that London wants Lord Mountbatten to do in that part of the world can be done according to those geographical demarcation. But over the decades, Southeast Asia has become uh, a more solid construct, if you yeah. can put it that way. Southeast Asia has come to be defined by Southeast Asians on That's their right. own terms. And That's right. I think what's fascinating about this is going back to the concept of ASEAN centrality, mm-hmm. just as once upon a time, Southeast mm-hmm. Asia was mm-hmm. a very ambiguous and, you know, contested term, which eventually mm-hmm. found its form. And, of right. course, ASEAN does not represent sa- all of Southeast Asia exclusively. However, it is mm-hmm. by far, like the EU uh, is to Europe, it is by far the most concrete manifestation or political entity that can speak for for the region, if there is one. And mm-hmm. I think the concept of ASEAN centrality speaks to mm. the Indo-Pacific also. So if the Indo-Pacific is a sort of a hybridized idea, just mm-hmm. sort of similar to Southeast Asia is a hybridized idea between mm-hmm. the idea of an East Asia and a South mm-hmm. Asia, well, mm-hmm. the Indo-Pacific is is similarly, it's kind of this morphing concept where, you know, we have the Indian Ocean over here, the Pacific over mm-hmm. here, we sort of bridge them mm-hmm. together. So at this point in time, I feel... We are all quite uh, a little bit confused as to exactly what it all means. So this okay. is what I hope uh, that Kim mm. and I and this show mm. will shed some light upon in our future mm. conversations is mm-hmm. exactly what the Indo-Pacific means to different entities, to different countries. You know, obviously it means something very specific uh, to those in Washington re- mm-hmm. re- regarding obviously – uh, trade and and security probably most prevalently mm-hmm. to ASEAN it's something else you know ASEAN mm-hmm. could e- even see the the whole concept of the Indo-Pacific as as a uh, as proof of its centrality you know because you mm-hmm. have the geographically speaking you have the Indian Ocean to its west and the Pacific to its east so it's right. it's right there in the middle of course India can see it as something else again as its leeway into you know having a more of an influence in its active policy. Uh, right. obviously China has a different, has a different approach again, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, mm. this all began in Japan in, in, with, uh, former mm. president, uh, Abe Shinzo. So, uh, sorry, mm. prime minister Abe Shinzo. So you mm. have, you know, Japan's own historical mm. views of, of Asia and, mm. and the broader region, uh, could be mm. at play there as well. So mm. you have this broad spectrum of, mm. uh, various, powers within the region, mm-hmm. but also their mm-hmm. notions of what in the Indo-Pacific is. So it is in its very early stages, it's in its infancy mm-hmm. and it will continue to grow, but we will continue through this podcast and through other content uh, in sure. association with your, with your think tank, uh, Kim, sure. continue to delve into what it really means across the spectrum, because it is sure. going to evolve uh, as the region uh, becomes further contested in into the future. Mm. I I just like to add very quickly mm, to Foreign Minister Wang Yi of China, when he was asked by journalists what does he think of Indo-Pacific, he said this is just a very frivolous and playful idea. Mm. Now, having said so, I would politely disagree with the 
foreign minister because the Indo-Pacific concept has actualized or self-actualized in the form of the Malaba military naval exercises in the Indian Ocean mm. recently. So that's one indication that those countries that have invested in this idea uh, potentially have embraced it as a policy will continue to uh, conduct their naval military exercises or expand them under the rubric of Indo-Pacific. So it's very difficult to just wave it off and say this is a frivolous idea that will not withstand the test of time Ah. because the more you say so, or rather the more China insists that this is not an important concept, the more you have pushback from those countries that have paid so much effort into making it a reality. Hmm. Of course, that uh, will foreshadow some of the discussions we'll have with experts going forward because, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, China's opposition to this concept is mainly, you know, is is part and parcel of what the whole idea is about. Uh, Mm -hmm. But this is exactly what I was just alluding to. It is a contested concept. And this is really the going forward, this is really going to shape the global order. And I I just want to give it over to you one more time, Kim. Like, what do you really think is at stake for the world through the Indo-Pacific in closing here? What what really is at the end of all of this? Well, I'm hoping that you can help me out a little bit because earlier you mentioned about 17. The way I see the world is the region is, or rather the world is shaped by 5S and 7T. So you have the Sino-US relationship, which is one of the independent variables that can affect everything else in the region. Yes. You have SARS-CoV-2. You may or may not have the resources to have the vaccine, but it's there anyway. You have the South China Sea uh, always lingering it or looming in the shadow, uh, or the East China Sea. You have also potentially human rights issues such as the suppression of Uyghur and other Muslim minority. Mm-hmm. And we have to bear in mind that Southeast Asia have three Muslim countries such as Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. Mm. And they all have some say in ASEAN. So China is not in a position to mistreat any Muslim at, unless they want to risk offending the domestic constituency of the leaders whom they deal with in Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. And finally, there is always a space race because right now we are uh, migrating to online or e-commerce, but 1% of all the internet signals are coming from land and submarine cables, which can be vulnerable to any kind of physical uh, or cyber attacks. So that's 5S, which my think tank is trying to focus on. But meanwhile, if we speak strictly in terms of how China and the United States will affect the whole tenor and tone of the whole region, then it's strictly speaking 7T. So the first T would be trade, 
between China and the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, the second issue would be uh, theater preponderance. You know, in other words, to what extent will China and the United States be able to assert themselves in the Pacific or the South China Sea? Okay. Uh, that, Those two uh, strategic theaters. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And then the third one is the status of Taiwan. Uh-huh. Fourth is the dynamic in Tibet uh-huh. within the context of China. And fa- the, the fifth is what I refer to as the Tiananmen issue. And which, shrouded hmm, which broadly the, encompasses uh, what? Which broadly encompasses how China treats its people right. uh, in Hong Kong, in Uyghur, in Xinjiang, mm-hmm. Falun Gong, so Christians, etc. Falun Gong, Fai Ti. Okay. And so, finally, yeah. there's another six and a seven T, uh, that can include, um, technology. Technology. You're right. And then the 70 is something which, uh, can encompass, uh, well, that, the, the seven one is the one that eluded my mind, but. Oh, I, I, I think I just recall it now. Uh, you're speaking about the TARD system, T-H-A-A-D. The, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, yes. That's the, correct. The, the missile system that's based correct. in that's South correct. Korea. Yeah. That's, that's correct. That's correct. Okay, so these are really the the battlegrounds for these are the battlegrounds mm-hmm, for yeah, dominance in the Indo for the two countries. So every countries that are invested in the dynamics of the South Sino-U.S. relationship, if they are out of the if they are running out of the toolkit and the policy instruments to understand what are the issues that actually antagonize or help them to collaborate uh, in contrast, then the 70s would immediately help them to zero in on their mind. Fantastic. And uh, the your think tank, another two Ts there, <laughs> will be exclusively uh, focusing on those five, seven, those spaces, That's right. as you mentioned, That's and right. then these these 70s, which are the uh, points of conflict between right. uh, the two superpowers going forward. Yes. So we're going mm-hmm. to uh, get such greater clarity, uh, we hope, from, from uh, SPIPA on these issues and, sure. and leadership uh, for Southeast Asia such that, and, sure. and the greater region uh, as sure. well on, on sure. how to go forward. So that's sure. all uh, very compelling uh, Kim, and we are so glad Thank to you. to discuss these issues with you today. The King and I will be continuing, and uh, we're going to have many guests uh, mm-hmm. from across the region. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your hope for our podcast? Uh, you know, broadly, what, 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 where do you see it going? Uh, just to any final uh, comments before we wrap it up? Yeah, my hope is that the epistemic community which is a collection of political scientists or policymakers who share the same causal belief, uh, can entertain what the late Thomas Kuhn at MIT once said, that from time to time you cannot just rely on the same paradigm again, 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 and again to make your policy or to make your prediction. And you have to have that creative rupture 
Mm. And the creative rupture has happened in uh, two instances. One, when the United States released the Indo-Pacific Strategy Paper on May 31st last year, and the dawn of the pandemic. So these are the two wake-up calls. Mm. And if there's a third, then I would refer to what I was privy to when I was in Jakarta, Indonesia, when some of their top decision makers explained to me the reason why they wanted to relocate the current capital, Jakarta. It's actually not because of the traffic gridlock and jams, but the serious uh, challenge posed by climate change. Uh. So I hope that my think tank would help them understand uh, all, all these three issues aside from the 70s uh, because they are the ones that will that will shape the dynamic of the region for the generations to come with mm. real implications on, on, on the lives of the people. That's right. There yeah. are millions or billions of people's lives. That's right. Uh, on the line right. as we go That's forward, right. and mm. uh, so many risks, you know, That's right. face us from all directions. So, That's right. you know, we can spend uh, at the end of the day. Policymakers have to think about themselves first and and the countries they represent. But uh, at a broader level, on a macro level, mm-hmm. uh, it is mm-hmm. we, we all hope that we can create a secure order where. Right. Yeah. All the peoples of the region can, can prosper and, and live peacefully together. So, you know, the, the right. way to do that is through greater communication and right. more quality research. And of course, yeah. entering a dialogue mm-hmm. with one another. So I hope yeah. uh, this show can facilitate that uh, as, mm-hmm. as much as possible. So, yep. so let's work on that. And so very, once again, thank you so much, Kim, for thank joining you so us. Much. And uh, we'll leave it there today until we, uh, come back next time for the Kim and I. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. It has been a privilege. Thank you.